0: You go to the Lord in prayer with me, Father. We thank you for your many blessings, and we thank you for uh, we thank you for your Word, Father. We thank you for uh, the fact that it is living and active. We thank you for the promise that you have made that you will sanctify us by it. And we would pray in these moments as we study that you would that You would use it for Your glory and our good. Would You teach us? Would You give us ears to hear? And I pray, Father, that in these moments that it would be rightly divided. May we see Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, tribulation, um, hardship, uh, distress suffering, affliction, trouble, whatever you call it, all of us at one time or another experience some kind of pressure, uh, burden, anguish and pain or suffering. And most of the time it's brought about by some sort of external circumstances. Uh, no one is immune to it at all, though we wish We could be, or were. Actually, James tells us that we need to expect it. In James chapter 1, we are to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. The question, why do people suffer, is very common. It's a question that we've probably all asked, every one of us has asked at one time or another. It was a question that Job asked. It was a question that Habakkuk asked. And unfortunately, some, when they ask that question, they also come up with a conclusion, and sometimes those conclusions are inappropriate. Sometimes they'll say, why do people suffer? And someone might respond, well, God just doesn't exist, or must not exist. Or if he does, he can't do anything about it. And still others will say things like, well, it's just due to a lack of faith on the part of the person that's experiencing that trouble. Unfortunately, some people do their homework. And actually look to see what the Word of God says and come up with and discover legitimate reasons for the suffering and the affliction that we encounter. Some of those things include the fall, of course. Some include consequences of our own actions. And some also, in the words of Jesus, that we experience so that the works of God might be displayed. But as we learned last week and as we'll look again this week, there's there's also that time of affliction and difficulty and maybe even suffering that God uses to discipline. And that discipline is used that he might lead us to obedience. As David said in Psalm 119, he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And in verse 71 he says, it is good for me. David actually says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? And he says, that I may learn your statutes. And this is actually Jonah's confession that we just read, actually that we just sang and read from Jonah chapter 2. And he makes this confession in all places, in the midst of a cramped and hot and humid and acidic and horribly smelling environment Within a fish. It was there that Jonah made sense of his affliction. And he made sense of his affliction. By doing a couple of things. First he acknowledged. That the Lord's affliction was gracious. And he also responded to it appropriately. And that's very simply our outline tonight. Acknowledging affliction as gracious. Or acknowledging gracious affliction and responding to gracious affliction. Let's look first at how Jonah responded to his affliction. And he did so in two ways. It was kind of uh, it had two facets to it. One, or first, he acknowledged what he had done. First, he started with himself. One of the striking truths, or at least to me as I read chapter 2, is the fact that he does not at any point in this chapter ask Why? He doesn't ask why, he doesn't even allude to it, he isn't stumped, he's he's not at a loss, he knows exactly why he's in the predicament that he's in. He knows exactly that he has made his own bed and why he's laying in it. He knows why he's been thrown overboard, there is no question. He knows why he's in the belly of the fish. And chapter 2 is is simply an acknowledgement of his disobedience and his defiance Nowhere in chapter one or two do we see him shaking his fist or or at or blaming God in any way for the circumstances that he finds himself in. He doesn't accuse God in any way. He doesn't say that anything's unfair. But he also, not only does he acknowledge what he has done, he also acknowledges what God is or has done and is doing. The two really go hand in hand. And this is where. The grace comes in. Look at verse 3. He says, for you, and he acknowledges the Lord, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounding me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Lord, you threw me in. Lord, the circumstances that I find myself in, you've created the storm. You are using the storm. And in verse 6, he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. Jonah knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that his disobedience and his defiance was deserving of being thrown overboard. No question. He knows that death at the bottom of the sea would have been a just consequence for his disobedience. He's not arguing in any way. He knows that God not only had the right, but according to his character, it was necessary or his character demanded that he bring about that discipline and that discipline be meted out. He also acknowledges that even in the midst of the storm and even in the midst of the sinking and even in the midst of the seaweed being wrapped around his head and even being in the belly of the fish, all of that was a part of of God's plan. God was in control of what was going on, both under the sea, above the sea. He was carrying out a plan and ultimately God was restoring him to fellowship God was using the experience to restore him to fellowship. In other words, Jonah is acknowledging that God was acting sovereignly and graciously in his life at that time for his own glory and for Jonah's good. And every time I read this, I find it, I find it amazing that in the midst of all that went on, in the midst of the fish, he never argued or fussed with God. He didn't act as though he deserved better. He didn't act as though he hadn't done anything wrong. And I find it just as amazing that he didn't need to wait to find himself on a nice sandy beach that some of you were on last week. Uh, fully cleaned off. Having showered. And experiencing health, wealth and prosperity before he acknowledged that God had been gracious to him. He acknowledges the grace of God in the midst of that fish. The affliction continued. And yet Jonah acknowledged the grace of God. But even in the midst. He's able to say God you're in charge. Those men were simply being used as instruments. They threw You threw me over. You used them to do it. You've sent this nasty fish to save me. I'm grateful for your sovereign work in my life. you saved me regardless, and I acknowledge that you're saving me regardless of how you're doing it. And he was grateful for it. The affliction in which he found himself was God at work. Jonah would actually agree with the hymn writer William Cooper who wrote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust in Him of His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In the midst of all that was going on, Jonah knew God to be good, and that God was using it for His good. And I think, in the midst of that, we need to we need to think of a couple things. We need to be reminded of a couple truths. And one is this: one of our biggest problems, I think, we face is that we do not like to admit when we're wrong, or when we're disobedient, or when we're deserving of discipline. Or maybe that's just me. I think. I think I'm probably in good company. We struggle admitting those things. And, and I don't care how old you are. You could be as young as those that were down here sitting with me earlier. Or you could be much older than that. We don't have to discuss our ages exactly. But it doesn't matter. It seems that our first response always is, I didn't do anything. Or a, a response that follows that, or that follows that is always, well, well it's not my fault. Or we begin to blame others or point fingers. And and listen, it's not just something that we do. It's, I mean, we can go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see it all taking place. It's nothing new. We all come by it through Adam. And unfortunately, not only do we... Not like to admit it to our, uh, to others, we don't like to admit, to admit it to ourselves. And so we ask others to pray for us and to pray for our circumstances and to pray for others and what they're doing to us. Or the unfairness of what we're in the midst of. Or maybe protection from what Satan might be doing. And we pray the same way ourselves. But oh, how much, how much we would avoid, how much trouble we would avoid, and how much soon we might be delivered if we would simply own up to and admit the responsibility that we have for the sins that we commit. Children, your parents ask you to do that all the time, right? Just, just take responsibility. Moms and dads, we need to listen to the things that we say to our children. We should take responsibility for our sin. We need to admit it. It's not revolutionary thinking. It's simply, hum- it's simply humbling ourselves, admitting that we've been defiant. It's simply a matter of a, con- a contrite spirit, right? Brokenness over our sin. And secondly, we need to remember that God is in the business of conforming his children into the image of the Lord Jesus. And like a father he is, and like the father that he is, he is also in the business of restoring fellowship with his children. That's what his desire is. He is willing to do, and and to bring about that restoration, we need to understand that he is willing to admit, we must be willing to admit that he is willing to do whatever it takes to bring that about. And sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes he disciplines, he afflicts, sometimes he steps back and allows things to happen, other times he's more direct and uses things to conform us into that image. But that's what makes that affliction so gracious. That's what makes the affliction and suffering gracious. His discipline is gracious. And so the question is how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the gracious affliction and discipline of the Lord? We have in this chapter, Jonah responding in three ways. I think there are three appropriate and very natural responses of a repentant heart. The first, look at verse 1. He says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. If you remember from last week back in chapter 1, Um, In the midst of his disobedience, the captain asked for everybody to pray to their God. Now we don't have a record of whether he did or didn't, but I have a pretty good sense that he didn't. And I have that sense because I think if he had, we would read that Jonah immediately joined them in prayer. If he had prayed, it might have said something like, um, and Jonah immediately cried out to Jehovah. But it's not there. I think chances are pretty good that he didn't jump in and pray because Jonah was on the run. Jonah was heading in the opposite direction. Jonah had been disobedient. And just like I mentioned with the kids, right? When, when our kids have gotten in trouble or even when we have done something that we shouldn't do, what is, our first, what is the first thing or no, first natural reaction is to go, run and hide? We don't want to be found. Our kids don't want to be found. When we disobey, we don't want to be found. Adam and Eve heard God walking in the cool of the day and what did they do? They hid. Again, it's a very a very natural response. Jonah was on the run. He was not interested in carrying out a conversation or carrying on a conversation with the Lord at that time. He didn't want to hear he didn't want to he was actually trying to fly under the radar. But now in the midst of these very dire circumstances, things change, don't they? Jonah's first response is to return to prayer. Jonah has been uh, and is in the midst of discipline. And rather than clam up, rather than pout, rather than to thumb his nose at God, he prays. He reestablishes the communication that's been broken. In the midst of the distress, the Bible says that he called out to the Lord. And I hope you have this, this picture. It's a very, I think it's a very vivid picture. We have Jonah floating to the bottom of the ocean. Seaweed wrapped around his head. He clearly understands that he's in a position where he cannot save himself. He's brought to the end of himself. He's completely indisposed. He's, he's heading, literally headed for rock bottom. As we often say. And what does he do? He cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the only one that can save him. He looks to the one who has provided for the sins of his people. We're going to learn. We're going to study. We're going to do something that not many church plants probably would do or consider doing in their first year of existence. But we're going to study the book of Leviticus in the fall. And we're going to find, as we study that book, that when Jonah says he was looking again to your temple, he was looking specifically, he's describing something. And what he was describing was that he was looking to the mercy seat that was found on top of the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies, upon which the blood had been sprinkled. And that blood had been sprinkled to atone for the sins of the, of the people who had broken the law of God that was within that Ark of the Covenant. And so Jonah says, I'm looking to that. Why is he looking to that? Because he's looking for for God who has covered his sins. He's looking to the Lord. He's he's crying out to him, God, I can't help myself, but you can. I can't save myself. You can by your mercy and grace. And so God heard him and comes and sends a fish and swallow that swallows him. And he begins praising the Lord even for the fish. Because he knew it was a way that the Lord was delivering him. And it was an act. It was a gracious affliction. An act of saving grace. On Jonah's part. And brothers and sisters. that You probably know this as well as I do. But the first spiritual discipline that goes. The first one that disappears. Which either leads to uh, disobedience and defiance. Or compounds and compounds disobedience. In defiance is prayer. We don't think about praying because we have no desire to pray. The lines of communication are strained or they disappear altogether. And like a child, as I was explaining earlier, that's disobedient, we run for cover, we hide somewhere where we can't be found. And we sit in the dark and hope that we're not found because we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to be discovered, but it's the Lord and his use of affliction in the midst of our lives. The the Lord that uses trials in our lives and suffering to to bring us out into the open and to reestablish that fellowship and that conversation. He brings us out. He brings us to a place where we're unable to depend upon ourselves, but we can only depend upon Him because He desires for that communication to be restored, that fellowship to be reestablished, and that desire is reflected in that coming out on the on the part of His children. They come out of that. They reestablish communication, and the silent treatment is exchanged or replaced with conversation. So, I, I would ask, I, I, would, I would say tonight, if you are currently in the midst of disobedience or are currently in the midst of some sort of defiance, my hope is that you would come out of isolation and silence and return to the Lord in prayer. Return to the Lord in prayer and cry out to Him. Look to Christ, the one to whom the blood on the mercy seat pointed. Right, We're not looking to the mercy. We're looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has... He has shed his blood for our sins. So confess your sin, receive the forgiveness of, of the one who is faithful to forgive. Call out to him as Jonah called out to God. Re-establish that communication that's been strained or maybe non existent. He will hear you. He will hear you. And for the future, for the future, don't ignore or neglect a, a pattern of isolation or prayerlessness. Tell someone immediately if that begins. Find others who will pray for you and pray with you immediately. Be honest about the cause of that lack of prayer. Call out to the Lord for the help you need so that that downward spiral to rock bottom stops. So he returned to prayer. Secondly, we see that Jonah returns to God's word. That exact thing that he was running from in chapter 1, he returns to in chapter 2. The Lord spoke to Jonah. He didn't want to hear it. He ignored it and went in the other direction. But now, that which he ran from is something as we read through his prayer and as we sang through his prayer, we see that it's God's Word that provided him solace, strength, And peace in the midst of a very, very difficult situation. How do we know that? Well, we see that he either references or at least it sounds very familiar. His prayer sounds very familiar with. Or he's quoting at least 20 different psalms. We find the language in at least 20 different psalms. And if you're interested in what those are, I can share those with you this week. They're either direct references or it sounds like he's so familiar with them that he's identifying with the psalmist as he's, as he's floating down. And, and the word that caused him distress in chapter 1 is now providing him great comfort. What he had heard and ignored is now something that's very sweet to his ears. What was once very disheartening is bringing him peace. Jonah's heart had turned through the Lord's discipline and that affliction had turned his heart back to the Word of God. And brothers and sisters, when we're on the run, when we're in the midst of disobedience and rebellion, we too don't want anything to do with God's Word. We're not interested in it. If we're honest and admit our sin, we we have to acknowledge that... that we don't want to to be a part of of hearing it of reading it we don't want to be a part of any any uh, corporate gathering in which it's preached but when when he works within us when he brings us to that place of of drawing us out through that affliction, through that suffering, through that discipline. And He draws us out of hiding and He draws us to a place where communication is restored again. He also draws us to a place where we desire to hear His Word. We desire to hear it read. We desire to know it. We want to be within the context of, of the body in the midst of corporate worship. Be ministered to through Word and sacrament. We want to mine the depths. We can't get enough of it. We want to mine the depths of the nuggets of truth. We want to be among God's people. We, we return. God's word is as sweet as honey. So I would say to you as well, if you are currently in the midst of disobedience and defiance, I, my, my hope and prayer is that you would return and, and come out of your isolation and return to the word of God. And a great place to start is right here where Jonah was in the book of Psalms. Because God himself gives us, and I've said this many times over this last year, but within the Psalms, God provided Jonah and God provides us a language that's appropriate for times of repentance and grief and sorrow and distress. Provides hope and trust. And of course, also for the future, don't ignore or neglect a pattern of isolation. Don't ignore those times when when you realize you don't want to have anything to do with God's word. Tell someone immediately, find others that will pray for you that you can share with honestly about what's causing causing you to be in that place that they can start praying with you and for you. And again, that they can bring they can come alongside you and and again, meet in the Psalms together. Because of the language that the Lord provides. So there's a return to prayer. We see from Jonah there's a return to prayer. A return to the word. And finally there's a return to obedience. There's a return to obedience. Verse 9 says. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Disobedience was the initial problem. And so it only makes sense that discipline or gracious affliction results in obedience. Jonah basically says, "Okay, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. I'm going to to go back. I'm going to do what you've originally called me to do. In other words, obedience, we see, and he's willing to go back. Remember, we have to remember and keep it in context of chapter one of why he didn't want to go to Nineveh, Nineveh, how difficult it was going to be, the animosity that was between him and the Ninevites, how cruel they were. I mean, this is a major, major decision for him to go back and say, I'm willing to do whatever it is that you want me to do. And so we see that obedience isn't conditional, it isn't. It isn't possible to just pick and choose what he wanted to obey. He didn't give a list of his demands. Lord, I'll come back and I'll be obedient as long as it's, it fits into what, what I'm comfortable with. And brothers and sisters, we're disciplined as well to, to teach us and to bring us to a place of obedience. That's why we discipline our children as was so clearly shared with us tonight. Why do your parents discipline you? To teach us to learn from our mistakes. It doesn't get any clearer than that. The Lord desires for us to be obedient. The Lord desires. I mean, when we become believers, what do we do? We repent. We turn from our sin and we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our direction is changed and what does discipline do? Discipline keeps us on that path or when we begin to stray off that path it brings us back to the path That he wants us to follow. James says we're not to be just hearers. But doers of the word as well. The ultimate goal is conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're in the midst of. If you find yourself in the midst of that disobedience and defiance tonight. I would encourage you again to come out of that isolation. And return to obedience. And for the future, again, don't ignore or neglect a pattern of isolation. Don't neglect a pattern of disobedience or defiance. Tell someone, find someone that will pray with you and for you. Call out to the Lord for help. Finally, let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, and Jonah says, salvation... Is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. For most of us here tonight. We know that salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The one to whom the blood on the mercy seat pointed. Salvation is found in the Lord Jesus. Who as I briefly mentioned with the kids. Whose life was characterized. By what? By prayer. A love for God's word. And complete. And complete. Total and perfect obedience to the will of the Father. He did what Jonah did not do. He did what you and I don't do. And His righteousness has been credited to us. For those who have put our faith and trust in Christ, His righteousness has has been imputed to us. so despite the fact that we we find ourselves in those moments when we are prayerless or we have even even we have to admit even maybe a, a disdain for the word of God at times. Why? Because we know we're in disobedience and we don't want to hear the truth. In those moments when we're disobedient, what are we to do? We're to cry out to the Lord, right? Because we said last week, the Lord Jesus has taken on that punitive penalty for our sin. therefore, we rest in the discipline of the Lord rather than in his in his punishment. And we know that we can cry out to Him and we can find forgiveness. And we also know that despite His prayers and despite His love for the Word of the Lord and despite His perfect obedience, He was put to death for us. You know, it's very possible that there is someone here tonight that is not a believer in the Lord Jesus and you've not admitted that you're a sinner and unable to... Save yourself. You may be here tonight and you've not repented of your sin or agreed with God of your sin and agreed with him that you're in need of a savior. And I would beg you to respond to the gospel tonight. It's only the Lord that can reach down and bring your life up from the pit. Let's use the language of our passage. Only he can clean off the seaweed that's around your head. Only he can take away the stench of your sin and give you new clothes. But it also doesn't matter how far you've run or how bad you think you might be. It is the Lord who saves. Salvation is from the Lord. God can and will save all those who cry out to Him. And I would, I would plead with you to, to cry out to Him tonight. Call in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's also very possible because, and I. As I've said, as we've gone through, that it's very possible that someone here tonight is on the run. You're a Christian. You're on the run, hiding, living a life of sin, living a life of defiance to the word of God. You're trying to do your own thing, live your own life. And you're either we could use two pictures here. You're either wallowing in the mud, right, like the prodigal son Or you're drifting down and you're spiraling down with the seaweed around your head to rock bottom. Whatever describes you best. You're suffering. Maybe you find yourself in the midst of affliction, being unwilling to admit that it's gracious, but the Lord wants to restore that fellowship. It's time to acknowledge your sin and your disobedience. And call out to the Lord. It's time That you acknowledge His sovereignty, acknowledge that you can't run and you can't hide, and it's time for you to repent and return to prayer, return to God's Word, and return to obedience. And then lastly, for those who are in the midst of gracious affliction that may not be a part of any type of defiance or disobedience on, on your part, and it's a part of it's a part of that life, and and God's sanctifying of you. May I say that the response is no different. Right in the midst of that affliction, in the midst of that suffering, regardless of what it might be, look to Jesus through prayer, look to Christ through His Word, and seek to respond in faithful obedience. Stay the course. Walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Trust Him. He's faithful. He's faithful. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that...